listening to the Southwest Tech Daily podcast. Hello and welcome to the Southwest Tech Daily podcast with me, Fayaz Khan, and my co-host Robert Hillier. Yes, hello, good evening, and welcome. And this special edition—they're all special—but this particularly special edition is possibly focusing on the less glamorous side of having a startup or being a startup founder. But it's getting your law and getting your maths and getting all of the foundations, legal and accountancy in place to make sure that your firm succeeds. First of all, we spoke to Sam Simpson from Founder Catalyst. They're a really, really important organization. If you're a startup just embarking on your career, whether you're at the start of your career, the middle, the end, they want to hear from you. But I think probably best to get to them at the start because there can be some pretty important things that you might just forget to do. A very young founder, he was only 19, I think, when this happened. He'd spent a couple of years developing a product, but he'd spent all of his savings and all of his time. He took on what he thought were two arms length investors. They both joined the board. They voted to remove him as a director. They froze the bank accounts. Yes, so lessons to be learned there. Also on is Tim Herbert from the London Law Collective. When we get a new client in and we want to potentially put a shareholders agreement in place, we normally send out a questionnaire about what the startup wants, how it envisages things going forward. And actually, you'd be surprised that that because of the excitement about the idea, future planning has not necessarily occurred. That's called the London Law Collective, but they're actually based around the country, including the Southwest. By the way, I googled him, and he's been in a movie with Taika Waititi. Yes, um, who wrote What We Do in the Shadows. One of- Did he? I love that show. Oh my god, he's hilarious. Apparently, the movie that Tim was in, which is called Hunt for the Wilder People, was. It's also a really hilarious show, and Taika Waititi is just very, very talented. So I can't believe he wrote what we did in the shadows. Yeah, it was him and Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords together. It's their thing. That's the if that is the best show. By the way, just sidebar: if you want something just to crack you up off an evening, check that out on iPlayer because <laughs> it's so good. Um, All right, let's go now to Dan White, who is our first guest on the podcast today. He's from Bishop Fleming, and he talked to us about accounts and why startups need to sort this out from the get-go. We place quite highly personal relationship skills within our people rather than just the technical skills. I mean, to be blunt, there are hundreds of thousands of chartered accountants in this country. Um, All of them can technically do the job that you'd expect an accountant to do. But to be able to have uh, compassion and to understand the problems that's going through, um, you know, that, that any business owner is facing um, is a skill in its own in its own right. So when we're looking for people, when we're recruiting people, whether that's, whether that's people straight out of university or straight out of school or experienced individuals, that's mainly the, the main thing we're checking and the main thing that we're looking for is somebody that we feel we can, if you like, put in front of a client, they can develop a relationship with a client and get to know the business, get to know the individual, get to know the problems that keep them up at night um, and really get work, work closely with them to be able to, if you like, 
set them at ease. I mean, there's always going to be problems that we can't solve. Um, you know, we can't fix everything. But to have that compassion and empathy to be able to, um, or if you like, go along the journey with the client with a business is incredibly important and particularly in the tech sector because like i said there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of startup businesses in that tech sector and more so if you like than we see in any other sector because we're very aware that somebody could start their business tomorrow and within six months that could be a multi-million pound business that's maybe been looking to acquire or they've they had an offer if you like to sell to a um, a potential investor or they want uh, an angel to come in and inject some money and and things move very quickly so if we're not able to to develop that relationship with a client to get close to them and understand what's going on it's it's, it's not as easy for us to be able to help when these when these if you like big changes and and events are, are, the events along their business life cycle happen and we're able to react very quickly and and also be proactive um so that's a long way of saying if, if we're not if we're not close to the clients we can't we can't offer the service that they need so we look for people that want to get close to clients and are able to get close to them relationship wise so the client know they can reach out and whenever they want and and we're there well it's really good because i mean now i suppose accountancy is not just about doing the books it's about more than more than that i have that with my own accountant where you know you can whatsapp them whenever etc it's it's just easier that way especially if you have a um, very creative mind i mean that means chaotic mind so you know <laughs> you don't have all your receipts and everything at the same time it's really good when your accountants are there on hand to manage those situations for you but I suppose with you guys it's something it's it's more than that as well isn't it how easy is it to navigate from having a startup to having an angel come in and then maybe you know selling that business within uh eight ten months whatever um how easy is it to navigate for that for the uh, client depending on the circumstance of a transaction and the background of a business and what the angel is looking to do and how much you know these cases can vary quite dramatically we tend to from from an early stage of a client make sure that they their if you like their their numbers their bookkeeping their their figures if you like are clean and tidy because at some point down the line particularly in the tech sector somebody is going to come along and want to invest some money or want to purchase that business let's say most of the time that's what we see and, and what comes with that is the angel or the potential purchaser wanting to look at the num- look at the background look at the bookkeeping look at the figures to check sure that everything adds up make sure everything's right make sure everything's clean so if, if from an early point we can make sure that those systems are set up in a clean way in a in a very specific way in a way that's easy to navigate and um, it makes that whole process which might be you know five six ten years down the line but, but we make that process when it comes so much easier so for us make it sure the accounts are right is almost a given we can then use those numbers to be able to be proactive with our tax planning um and and with, with things like i don't know what we think the company is actually worth what the value of the business is it's a lot easier to do that and be upfront with conversations and negotiate across the table with a potential purchaser if we have upset information and we know where we can place reliance on the numbers that are used for those calculations so yeah we like to get off if you like get off on the right foot early to make sure that everything is right and mm. that we can place reliance on that for the more exciting and technical 
skills if you like that we can bring to the table oh my god it sounds like you have to be extremely organized to be an accountant like i my brain can't even comprehend that kind of organization like i have like 50 things going on at one time it's quite stressful yeah i mean it's one of the skills that you need and some people are more organized than others we work as a team to make sure that the right boxes are ticked on one particular client like if we've got i don't know let's say client a is 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 might be my main responsibility there'll be six seven eight people that work on that client um whether that's a a tax specialist a fundraising specialist uh an account specialist a bookkeeping specialist an audit specialist whatever it is look after that client in the areas that is relevant to them and between us we can make sure that that everything is done properly rather than placing everything on one person now because the success and failure of startups is often not to do with the idea itself but it can be to do with those other factors can't it it can do with that lack of legal advice and and yeah decent contracts at the start and um IT, and, and it issues and other kind of external factors getting in the way and accountancy obviously plays a part in that how 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 crucial is it do you think to have good solid accountancy advice for a startup to be successful and do enough people understand the importance of that um well i'm going to be biased and say it's very important obviously but it's very easy and you know i would say this as an advisor it's very easy when you start on a business to watch the pennies and watch the pounds and think i just need to tick this box what's the cheapest way of me ticking this box whether that is getting the right software into your business the right hardware the right legal support and that comes the same with accounting support as well so we, we quite often see if you like where somebody has um if you like gone for a very basic cheap um accounting partner option and and almost just said like i just forgot the service where they've just done that like i said well like i was referring to earlier from 10 years ago they've got a service where someone has come in at the end of a year maybe six months out of the year and looked at their numbers turned that into a set of accounts done the tax return and come back a year later without providing that relationship and, and and that advice, which is really, really important to a startup, because more often than not, you know, this is their first business. They haven't got any experience in what needs to be done, both from a legislation point of view, but also from a, a proactive planning point of view. So your business has grown and it's on that next the next stage of a business life cycle. You know, maybe one of those events are triggering a potential sale or or an investment. A basic error that you've made from upon startup could really hold back on the value that you're going to see in that business at that point. With the uh, the, the macroeconomic climate being so tough for so many businesses in, in the UK now, what trends are you seeing in terms of uh, where money's coming from, how it's being spent, what investments are being made, and what appetite there is out there for people to uh, to start to scale, to start to sell. Are you are you positive and confident that that the sector's got enough in it to weather out what we're seeing now? The, the climate is tough at the minute. It's in the news every day for problems that we're facing, and more often than not, the media are a little bit more um, scaremongering, shall I say, than than what we see. I mean, from a from a general practice point of view across our client base the majority of our clients have had good years um business businesses have grown profits have grown there's still a lot of confidence out there in in, in several sectors i think what's potentially unique to the tech sector upon startup is generally people have an idea and they, they think, how do i turn this idea into a profitable business and then when it comes when it then comes to 
how do I create funding to turn this idea into a business? The banks don't particularly like that. And, you know, for good reason. So what what banks want to be able to, when, when they're lending money to a startup, is to be able to secure that debt against something. So if it's just an idea, there's nothing really there to secure it against. So we 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 are seeing more, more often than not now, bank of mum and dad and, and bank of friends coming in from an early point to, to lend business owners the funds they need to get their business starting. There's all different types of finance now that, that weren't around or were much more expensive several years ago. Things like invoice finance we're seeing quite often. So that's when a business has got to a point where they're able to invoice a customer, that, that customer might say, right, great, thanks, but our term, our payment terms, we're going to pay you within 60 days, which isn't great for a startup. Um, an invoice finance and agency might come in and almost release 95%, 90% of that debt from day one. Um, and, and allow the business to go off and take that money straight away to reinvest and start again rather than have to wait six days to be paid. So there's things like that as well as traditional kind of asset-based lending when, I don't know, somebody needs to buy a, a van or some hardware. Um, there's various credit brokers, out, credit agencies out there that will lend money on that type of thing. But it, it is hard. It is really difficult for a startup to to gain the funding they need to kick their business off. So let's say I am a software company. Uh, I've just created an app to, I don't know, help farmers, you know, just streamline their work. And uh, I don't need much. I do need to go out into the field occasionally, meet with farmers. I uh, probably uh, I probably have two members of staff, me, and then we have, I don't know, 200,000 pounds of funding. What is, but we are brand new, you know, we are just going out, we are just um, linking up with with stakeholders, whoever we need to to, to sell this app or to, to get people using the app. So what's your top advice for, for us, uh, accountancy-wise? Again, it would just come back to the basics of um, making sure you've got that, that record keeping on point so you know what you're spending. You know, at that point, in, in that example you've given me, I suspect that 200k would go pretty quickly by the time you've paid with your members of staff and travelled around yeah. and, and trying to sell. So, knowing knowing what your expenses are and then be able to project, or if you like, cash flow forecasts to, to know when it's going to run out and be able to make those decisions is vitally important. So, I think I think from a from an accounting advice, that's where I'd come from early on. I mean, from from a from a business advice point of view for that kind of example, I would probably try to link up that individual with let's say another client or two of mine um where it might be something might have done something similar um whether that's in the farming sector or in the software sector and see whether there's something that some advice that we can give to that person um from someone that's been through that three or four years prior dan white from bishop fleming there i think uh wise words it sounds obvious but as we know, not enough companies think about the less glamorous stuff before they begin and they come a cropper. Yeah, they do indeed. And actually, we'll hear more about that from Tim Herbert, who's at the London Law Collective, who explains why legal advice at the start of your startup journey is often not taken quickly enough and how that can have detrimental effects. Most startups, because they've got the idea, they sort of 
zoom ahead. They've normally got a good idea and a limited budget. They zoom ahead with the, the good idea and feel that legal costs are something of an unnecessary cost. And the, the point is that, that it is useful and sensible to sort of have a trusted advisor early on who can at least give you some guidance. I mean, there is a lot that you can do yourself as a startup if you have a limited budget, but it's still useful to have that sort of general overview of how you start off and where you go. Otherwise, you're sort of to a large extent relying on on cut and paste, which might seem fine in the early stages, but uh, it can come back to bite you. It's a kind of there by the grace of God go we sort of situation. Could you give us an example? Employment contracts are, are one where you would say, well, you know what, maybe you should go and see a lawyer to just get something that's a, a standard form template that you can use and to explain how you adapt that template to the specific sort of um, scenarios that you, you might come across. I mean, the fundamental one that seems to often get uh, pushed away is um, some form of co-founder or shareholders agreement. Um, the fact that you're, you and your friend are very excited about an idea um, doesn't mean that you're going to stay friends forever and you're going to agree forever on what your um, uh, how your idea is going to be progressed. I, I have a both a deal and disputes background, um, and a lot of the disputes that exist arise because nobody thought there would be a dispute. Um, everybody thought that they'd be friends forever or indeed family forever, uh, which they will be, but you know, you know what I'm saying there. In fact, if they'd had a shareholders agreement or a co-founders agreement, then the problem that they had could have been sorted rather than a, a nebulous sort of dispute that where there's no guidelines, no sort of way of either of them exiting or anything like that. It's, it's quite common, isn't it, to read um, histories of, of, of amazing companies and you go back to the beginning and often the people who end up running the company successfully are not the ones who were there at the start, just for exactly the reason that you've that you've pointed out. Presumably the ones who don't get this sorted out are the ones you don't hear about because the companies don't go anywhere. Have you have you ever come across an example of a company where you can see that there's going to be problems which are simply not going to sort themselves out because they didn't they hadn't thought enough at the start about what their their legal platform, their foundation was going to be? Well, normally if I come across that or I can see that there's a potential for issues, uh, then I would immediately advise that they do what they need to do to uh, to avoid those issues. So enter into a shareholders agreement, co-founder agreement, something like that. So um, if I ever have that sense, um, well, in fact, I mean, it would be my normal go to if somebody if two two or more people came to me and said uh you know we want to take this idea forward the first thing i would be looking at is some form of shareholders agreement to make sure that if it all goes to uh pot um then um there's some something to fall back on normally if that hasn't been put in place then um it's it's normally reached the stage of a dispute so um, you, you end up in a, in a situation where there is a, a dispute about who's going to exit, what's got, who's going to keep things and so on. So I never actually see that scenario, or I hope never to see that scenario, because I'm either the ambulance at the top of the cliff trying to deal with the um, shareholders agreement or the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff dealing with the dispute that's arisen. Is it a bit like a prenup? Is the reason that startups don't take this on uh, very early on is because like you said, they think that they're always going to be friends. And it 
kind of brings a little bit of i don't know distrust maybe in the relationship yeah i think a prenup is a is a is a good analogy it is a bit like a marriage uh because you are both building something for the future yes i agree with you that to say at the start well shouldn't we get this all written down uh so that if things go bad later on does to some extent uh suggest that things are going to go wrong but in fact it's just a safety net and that's really how it should be seen rather than something sinister and then how do you convince startups at this point to go you know when you when you meet you know three or four founders or or one founder who's then taken on two extra directors or whatever and how do you convince them to say you know what this is something that's important you need yeah. it and this is going to prevent issues in the future yeah i mean look there are there are two ways that i would normally approach it one is to say look you you may all be friends now but um you've seen the social network uh and um you know that there's a possibility you may not be friends in the end so you need this security <laughs> the other is to point to the fact that you know often a startup is looking for external investment uh, and um, if you have a shareholders agreement already in place, um, then the investor, to some extent, has to take that into account when they come along. Um, otherwise, you potentially have the investor just saying, this is our standard shareholders agreement. This is what you're going to sign. Uh, so so it's it's also future planning um, in terms of, of ex- external investment. It also sounds like by having this agreement in place ahead of time, ahead of getting investors, et cetera, you have more control over your business. Yeah, than... that, that, that would be fair. Yeah. Um, as I said, um, it, it's harder for an investor to insist on their, their own terms. I mean, they still can. So, and depending on the investor, they often will. Um, but it is easier to say, well, we've already got this in place and it's worked quite nicely. Um, and to say, why can't we have this bit in or that bit in and so on? Uh, so, yeah, it, it definitely puts them in a stronger position, I feel, as to external investment. What specific knowledge do you need as as a legal firm representing startups that, that differs from uh, more traditional commercial or corporate legal knowledge we normally send out a um when we get a new sort of client in and we want to uh, potentially put a shareholders agreement in place we normally send out questionnaire uh and the questionnaire asks some key questions about essentially what the the startup wants right how how it envisages things going forward and actually you'd be surprised that that because of the excitement about the idea Future planning has not necessarily occurred. Um, and so it sort of focuses the startup to try and, um, and and see where it's going. And that's sort of different in terms of uh, corporate and commercial because corporate and commercial, otherwise you're generally sort of dealing with what's there and what has already been created. Um, whereas uh, with startups, you're right at the, the sort of start of the creative process. And within the Southwest, would you say that the legal foundations in startups in the Southwest are pretty solid? There's a mixture, right? They're, they're, they're like all of these things, I mean, this is true anywhere in, in the UK, really. Um, there's a mixture. There are there are some that have, you know, taken advantage of what is what are quite considerable startup resources in the Southwest and, and are in a 
in a reasonable position. And then there are some that have sort of worked on an ad hoc basis and and are just looking to either tidy themselves up or to um, actually put a structure in there and in place in the first place. Yeah. And what what does this all cost, though? How expensive is it for startups? Because, you know, they don't, um, they, yeah, they're always on question. shoestring budgets. I mean, look, this is a question that that we often get asked. Um, and the answer to it is that it everything depends on the particular circumstances. So um, I could, a, a simple shareholders agreement, you know, shouldn't cost that much. But but if you've got lots of bells and whistles that you want to add into it, then it's going to cost more. Um, but the important thing here is that it, it is a, 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 a critical cost in the sense that it really sets up your business uh, for the um, for the future. So it's an investment rather than necessarily a, a sort of wasted cost. Um, but in terms of giving you a sort of clear price, well, I, I can't I can't do that because it, it differs so much. But of course, the cost of not doing it will far outweigh any initial investment. Presumably. Exactly. It's a, a stitch in time saves nine. I seem to be uh, doing a lot of things today. Um, but yes, it is the idea that if you get the cost, it, it is a cost at an early stage, but compared to, for example, a dispute at the end, it's, it's going to seem like chicken feed. Tim Herbert there from the Southwest-based London Law Collective. Let's hear from Sam Simpson now. He's from Founder Catalyst. He told us that the UK's seed investment schemes, and you'll need to remember this, SEIS and EIS, are actually pretty good when compared to other countries. And we started the interview by asking him about the statistic that most startups fail within the first five years. The statistic everybody pans around is 80% of startups fail within five years of incorporating. There are a great deal of reasons why that happens. Firstly, you know, it's it's quite common for the founding team to fall out. uh, And that is why you put something called a founder collaboration agreement in place to ensure that everybody's clear on what the business's purpose is, what shareholding people have, what remuneration. Um, you then get product market fit. Sometimes it's just the wrong product in the wrong market or at the wrong time. And that's the reason why it will fail. And then finally, you get to legals. And this is thankfully very rare. There are some great options uh, at the moment to get decent legals in place. But there are some real horror stories where founders have had their business stolen from them by not having the correct legals in place. And it happens, thankfully, very rarely. But it still is a thing and it can be prevented by having a solid legal foundation for the business. Oh, my God. Tell me more of that. It sounds terrifying. I don't want to go into too many details because um, obviously this is very personal to the founders. But we've got a case study on our Founder Catalyst website, for example, where a very young founder, he'd spent, he was only 19, I think, when this happened. He'd spent a couple of years developing a product and a couple of years is quite a lot when you're only 19. But he'd um, spent yeah, all of his savings and all of his time uh, developing a product. He took on what he thought were two arms length investors. They both joined the board. They voted to remove him as a director. They froze the bank accounts. And thankfully, this is a, a fairly unusual occurrence. But it does seem to be a, a pattern when uh, people try to move into a business. In theory, they invested under SEIS. But in practice, their aim was always to wrestle control from the founder. And it, the founder actually ended up excluded from his own business. He, he resigned and walked away. But he also has restrictive covenants, which prevent him from uh, you know, rebuilding a very similar business in the future. So when you look back to 2017 and the exit that you did from your 
company. What did you learn from that experience that you've been able to take on and give that advice to others? The exit was really interesting for me. I mean, we didn't expect, we you know, had notionally a business plan where we would exit after six years or so. We incorporated in 2013 and then exited in September 17. So it was a, yeah, it was a ridiculously fast growth from zero to 27 million. And then um, we were acquired by private equity. There are lots and lots of lessons. One of the humorous lessons, for example, is as we were negotiating the exit, our solicitor said, these deals never happen late at night or happen in you know, it will happen in the afternoon, it'll all be fine. And actually, the, the paperwork was delayed due to a last minute negotiation. And we ended up signing the paperwork. Um, so yeah, don't believe lawyers when they tell you that things always close in, uh, in office hours. What was really fascinating for me was seeing the, the kind of the room prepared for completion. And it was a vaguely complicated transaction because there was bank debt being introduced. There were two... Um, there, were, there was an acquisition being made simultaneously with the exit. And obviously myself and my one of my co-founders were leaving at the same time. But there was a field, an absolute room full of paperwork, literally hundreds and hundreds of different types of documents, all of which needed signing in a different order by different people at different times to do a different thing. It was, uh, it was absolutely eye-opening. You mentioned that the UK has quite a few standardised processes for startups. And I wonder how far behind or indeed far forward we are in comparison to other countries. Because if you look in like, you know, across Africa, across the US, especially, you know, in California, Far Eastern countries and Japan, China, there, there are a lot of startups and they do things really quickly and they do things really well. How do we compare to them? I think the UK is really advanced, actually. I think um, the SCI, SEIS schemes are unparalleled. I've never uh, seen uh, tax incentive schemes that, that equal those uh, from any country. So I think they are genuinely unique and very, very supportive of entrepreneurs in the UK. Uh, and I think from a legal perspective, um, you know, you hear some horrible stories from places like Germany, where you need physical notaries and things like that to, to countersign documents. And that can add weeks and weeks and weeks of traction into a funding round. I think in the UK, if you incorporated a business today, uh, you would get your port tax uh, reference in, say, three or four weeks. Um, and then you could apply for advance assurance, which takes roughly a week or two. And then the very next day, you could do a funding. And using uh, Founder Catalyst, you can literally close a funding round. We've got a demo video on our site where somebody creates a free account. They add details of themselves, the company, the funding round. They invite a test investor and they close a funding round in 10 minutes. Now, the reality is that nobody closes a funding round that quickly because um, there are uh, delays with, uh, you know, it's like herding cats when you deal with investors. But in, in practice, you can go from zero to closing a funding round in six weeks, which I think is, is pretty quick. With some of the specialisms that we have within the Southwest, uh, agritech increasingly important and, and space tech, do you have to have specialist knowledge in each of those areas or is what you do transferable enough to help cross-sector? That's a really good question. So personally, I'm a sector agnostic investor. I've invested in, for example, my first investment was a lady who manufactures the most comfortable underpants ever and she's appeared on Dragon's Den and things like that. And then I've got some really deep uh, deep tech investors. There's a customer called Rovco, sorry, an investment called Rovco based out of the Southwest and who make uh, underwater vehicles that use AI to, um, 
do surveys of oil rigs and things like that. So um, I don't think it's necessary to have deep domain expertise in anything you're investing in. Are there any particular trends that you're seeing then coming through at the moment? If you think back even to four or five years ago when you started investing, areas that have started to leave the market and an increasing trend in areas that are becoming more investable and more important? What's really interesting is every year there are there are certain um, investment types or opportunities that become uh, very positive and there are some that fall away. So last year, everybody, you know, there lots of the businesses were around meta and VR and blockchain and, and items like that. And, and it's those sectors have particularly dropped off a cliff this year. So it's very, very rare to see you know, anything metaverse related at the moment, whereas AI is back in fashion and probably always has. When I started investing five years ago, AI was uh, was of interest. As I mentioned, there's the underwater vehicles using AI for image detection. Um, I've also got an investment in a company called Skin Analytics that do melanoma detection using a smartphone and AI, which is amazing. But those businesses go back four or five years ago. I think with the with the release of ChatGPT and the nominal success of that business, AI again is back on trend. So when would you say someone needs to come to you, and and when they do? What's the process? What happens um, when someone joins Founder Catalyst? So we like to start the conversations with our with our customers as soon as we can in their journey. So uh, we provide lots of guides um, that really handhold a founder who has potentially not even incorporated their business. They've got a bright idea, but they've done nothing at all about it. We've got guides that walk people from having that thought all the way through to closing their first funding round and beyond. Um, our first interaction with customer is usually uh, when they require, they realize they require SEIS and EIS advanced assurance, which is effectively just an email from HMRC um, confirming that in, any potential investment should be eligible under the scheme. So it's at that point customers usually approach us to get the advanced assurance in place. Um, and then we'll maintain that relationship through um, hopefully multiple funding rounds. And how have you found dealing with HMRC? I, I've always found them to be absolutely amazing, which, I mean, I don't think many people actually promote HMRC or, or have anything positive to say about them. I don't know. But I always think they are fantastic to work with. And even the people on the phones are highly knowledgeable. I think the um, the, the team that deal with the venture capital schemes are are amazing. The number of applications they must receive every single day is eye-watering and at the moment they're turning those around between seven and ten working days which I think considering the workload is amazing um, and some of these applications are highly technical some are in the gray areas of the legislation so the underlying legislation underpins SEIS and EIS has lots of things like excluded trades things you're not allowed to uh, trade you're not allowed to undertake and still make use of the schemes um, but lots of businesses fall into that kind of grey area, which are really close to the to those kind of excluded activities. And it's really interesting dealing with HMRC to um, to get businesses through that process. Quite a lot of macroeconomic challenges for the UK economy at present. We don't need to list them all. But in terms of your outlook, uh, how how positive is your sentiment 
um, for startups and particularly for Southwest startups in the coming years? Yes, as you say, that it's incredibly challenging at the moment with inflation, interest rates, and a million other uh, war in Europe and uh, and things like that. So I think lots of startups are struggling. Um, I think the the challenges around getting useful statistics on funding round performance as well. Um, and it's slightly cloudy. If you look at 2022 as a whole, then it looks like quite an amazing year for equity investment. It was the second greatest um, year on record. So on the face of it, it looks amazing. But that hides a grim reality, which is Q1 was amazing. It had the best ever quarter for equity investment in the UK. But that absolutely hides the Q2 to Q4 numbers where you see equity investment dropping to 2020 type levels. I suspect this challenging period will continue for the next year or so. And what, what it's effectively doing is a few things. So it's driving down pre-money valuation and the amount people can raise. So the average valuation, I think, had spiraled a little bit out of control over the last few years, but that's really clamping down. So we're seeing valuations for pre-seed, pre-revenue dropping to the, the previous Bohurst averages of about 1.3 to 1.5 million. And we're seeing the average funding round being pressured as well from you know, people who are pushing 1 million pre-seed, pre-revenue rounds again. And we're seeing that being clamped down to, um, you know, kind of pre-21 levels of about 250 to £300,000. So just to follow up to my final question, so, um, as we begin to approach uh, an election in 18 months max, do, uh, do economic soothsayers like yourself start to look at Labour Party policy, what a Labour government might do and take decisions or hold off on decisions looking at any policy changes that might come in or do things generally stay the same because of the level that you're working at? So the people we deal with are mostly early stage, first, second, third funding round and um, both, all, all of the main parties are very, very supportive of entrepreneurs in the UK. So I wouldn't expect you know, Labour uh, a Labour government to make any changes at all to the SEIS and EIS legislation. I think that would be that would be disastrous, and I absolutely wouldn't expect that to happen. Um, so, at a very early stage, early funding rounds, um, I wouldn't expect any major policy changes due to a changing government. Sam Simpson from Founder Catalyst. So for info, the UK's SEIS and EIS scheme offers tax relief to individual investors who buy new shares in a company of up to £150,000. And I think that is quite substantial when compared to other countries, um, having spoken to Sam. So thanks for listening. By the way, that is all we have for today. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Just look for Southwest Tech Daily. And can we say a huge thank you to Tech Southwest for giving us this opportunity and our guests for coming on every month and making this podcast happen. Finally, I want to say a huge thank you to my favourite person on this podcast who nobody hears, but it's Samaya, our producer. Thank you for organising everything the last few months. You make a huge difference. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You just make our lives so much easier. Seconded. If you want to be on the podcast, email Sumaya, S-U-M-A-Y-Y-A, at evanesco.co.uk. She's also on LinkedIn, and her email is written on all of the write-ups on all of the podcast apps, wherever you may be listening. So thanks for listening, and goodbye. Bye-bye. The Southwest Tech Daily Podcast. Come and join the conversation on LinkedIn. Southwest Tech Daily.